Let us then return to Isaiah chapter 2. We shall read the verses that will comprise our text from verse 2. So, Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 2 following as our text. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among the nations, and shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. Amen. And these verses that we've just read comprise our text, and uh, the message of the sermon will come basically from these three verses. And the title I'd like to give, bearing in mind that this is the fifth Wednesday of the month, which we have designated to be a missionary prayer meeting. And therefore, the title for the meditation tonight is Christ Everlasting Kingdom. And I do believe that this is basically what these verses in this prophecy are drawing to our attention. It is being revealed to us here the wonderful, glorious future of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it will be no surprise to you that the book of Isaiah was written by Isaiah and one Isaiah. There are some who maintain that there were two or three Isaiahs. We do not hold to these opinions. The book was written by one author, and his name means Jehovah is salvation. And Isaiah had a, a long prophetic reign, a long reign as a prophet. He prophesied in Judah, that is the southern kingdom. He prophesied for over 60 years. In one respect, he didn't have a, a very fruitful ministry in the sense that many people did not listen to him. But nevertheless, he was a faithful servant of the Lord. And therefore, we are inclined to believe that he did have a fruitful ministry. And of course, even the church today is benefiting from his ministry because we're able to study his prophecies, which are still relevant to us today. And he prophesied in the, the eighth century, that's in the 1700s BC, and he was a contemporary along with Amos, Hosea, Jonah, and Micah, who also prophesied in the eighth century. 
Well, before we get into the meat of the text, it would be helpful for us to uh, have an understanding or a grasp of whom or why was the book written. And in the Old Testament, and, and especially when you go to the, the prophets, whether they be uh, major prophets or minor prophets, it's always good to know what was the purpose of the book or who was the author originally writing the book for. Well, why was this book written? What's the people he was aiming at initially? Well, two things basically we would say. He was encouraging the prophet's contemporaries to be loyal to the Lord. The people that were living at the same time as him, he was encouraging them to be loyal to the Lord when many, of course, were not. But it was also written that future readers in exile, Judah would go into exile, and we might consider that in a moment. But it was written to these uh, people from the south who would go into exile, into Babylon, to repent of their sin and trust in the Lord, to encourage the faithful remnant there who have been brought into exile, that they would remain faithful to the Lord and that they would look forward to this glorious restoration and that they would recognize that when they would return to the land and when the, the temple and the worship would be restored and of course ultimately when Jesus Christ would come, there would be unprecedented blessings both for Israel and indeed for the nations of the world. And therefore, these are the two reasons we think that this book was written, to encourage his contemporaries to be faithful in a day of unfaithfulness, and then to encourage those who would read about this many years later, because Isaiah was one who lived during the time when the Assyrians came and captured the northern kingdom and took the people away into captivity. So he saw the, the Assyrians come and take away the northerners. And he also prophesied in this, in this prophecy here about the Babylonians, and they would come to Judah. Now, he didn't live when this happened. It was long after he died, but he prophesied that the Babylonians would come and take the people of the south into captivity, and they would be there for 70 years. But he also prophesied that after their captivity, another kingdom would arise, the Persian kingdom, and they would be instrumental in letting the Jews go back to the promised land to rebuild the temple. So you can see Isaiah personally experienced the Assyrians coming and taking the northern kingdom into captivity. He prophesied that the Babylonians would come and that they would take the southern kingdom, Judah and Jerusalem into captivity. They would be there for 70 years and he also prophesied that they would return. And of course, we know all of these things happened. 
giving us confidence in the word of God. Now, we, we didn't read it, but basically to help us again to understand our text, in chapter 1, what's he saying? What's he saying in chapter 1 to the people? Well, basically, he is rebuking the people for their hypocrisy and their idolatry. And that's what he does, actually, in the second part of the chapter that we read. He is highlighting the, the idolatry that's going on in Judah. And he ends that chapter by saying, Cease ye from man whose breath is in his nostrils, for wherein is he to be accounted of? Well, before he denounces them, he gives these this wonderful prophecy and encouragement. And it is an encouragement and a prophecy that is bang up to date and it is relevant for the 21st century Christian. Because in these verses, he prophesied the glory and the success of Christ's kingdom. Now that may well seem strange to us, but that's what he said. And later on in, uh, in the prophet, in his book here, in chapter 9, for instance, he reiterates that prophecy. Let me read it to you. In, in chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, he basically reiterates this prophecy that we're considering this evening. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now we're not going to dwell upon that two verses, but basically what these verses are telling us about one who would come, and that person is the Lord Jesus Christ, and he would have a government, he would have a reign, and forever. And what he has said in these verses has been fulfilled, is being fulfilled, and will ultimately be fulfilled. For Christ will have an everlasting kingdom, a kingdom that will bring to naught all the other kingdoms of this world. You remember, I'm sure, Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2. Here was Nebuchadnezzar, uh, a Babylonian ruler. He was a mighty monarch in his day. He would at least rule a large part of the world and whatever he said came to pass, if you like. He could take a man's life and no one would say a word. He could destroy a people and no one would say a word. He was a mighty monarch. He had a, he had a dream one evening. And in that dream, he had a vision. And he woke up in the morning and he was disturbed. He knew he had a dream and he knew he had a vision, but he couldn't remember it. So he gathers all his wise men of Babylon. 
And he tells them, I've had a dream. I saw a vision. But I can't remember it. Now, you're wise men. You know these things. You tell me what it is. You tell me the dream and you tell me the meaning of the vision. And of course, they couldn't do it. As you know, they couldn't do it. It was impossible. They said, this can only be done by the gods. This does not rest with men. We cannot do it. Tell us the dream. Tell us the vision and we will interpret it. But no. Well, you know what happened. Daniel heard of it. And Daniel asked for time. And he went along with his colleagues and they prayed. And they asked God that the Lord might reveal the dream and the vision. And that's what happened. Daniel received a revelation. Daniel then goes and tells Nebuchadnezzar what it was. Nebuchadnezzar saw a great image. And this image represented himself at the top of the image, a great powerful kingdom, a kingdom of gold and a kingdom of silver and brass and iron and clay. And what happened to this great image? This great image was destroyed by a stone that came from nowhere and destroyed this image. And you know the interpretation. That stone represented the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when it came, it destroyed that image. Well, that's what Jesus Christ does when he sets up his kingdom. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, here, Daniel is given the interpretation. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. And it shall stand forever. This is what Isaiah is talking about here, and what he said in chapter 9, verses that we've read, and Daniel saying exactly the same thing a couple of centuries later. They're all talking about the glorious kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we are Christians, friends, we are part of that kingdom. And we are to be encouraged because Christ indeed has an everlasting kingdom, a kingdom that cannot be overthrown. Impossible. Well, you may well be sitting here tonight, and you will, may well be saying, you may not, but you may well be saying, well, so what? This is all very well. This is, this is just some biblical prophecy and some history. Very interesting, but so what? Does it affect me? Well, I do believe it does affect you and me. It affects us here this evening. And I want to draw one or two practical lessons from uh, these verses, I trust, for our edification. First of all, we're to believe this. We're to believe this. Now, if you go back to this text that we're looking to, and in the time of Isaiah, it would not be that easy for them to believe this. It would not be that easy for them to think of a glorious kingdom 
in the, in the state that they found themselves in. Why do I say that? Well, just turn to uh, chapter 1 of Isaiah, and we'll read very briefly uh, verses 26 and 27. As I said, he is more or less in chapter 1 outlining the sins of the people. But here in these two verses, the Lord through the prophet is giving them some encouragement. And I will restore thy judges as at the first, and thy counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, thou shalt be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed with judgment, and our converts with righteousness. So, here the Lord in the previous chapter, in these two verses, has stated the doctrine. He has told them there's going to be some encouragement. Although he sees a, a nation with a lot of hypocrisy and a lot of idolatry, yet here is some light. And now, in chapter 2, we might say that he adds to the light by giving this vision to the prophet, that he might bring this, this vision to the people. But nevertheless, it is quite difficult for them really to understand, uh, to believe this. Because, as we said, for instance, if you go back to verse 8 of chapter 1, and the daughter of Zion is left as a cottage in the vineyard, as a lodge in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. That's Jerusalem. That's Jerusalem brought low. The daughter of Zion. That's Jerusalem. That's, that is the Jewish church at that time. It has been brought low. But also, when it talks here, in our text, for instance, it talks here in verse 3, And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways. And we will walk in his paths, for out of the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. It's talking about the mountain of the Lord. It's talking about Mount Zion. Well, Mount Zion, great mount. There are many other mountains round about it, far bigger. And this is a picture of the church of that time. It was low. It was brought low. Yet, the prophet was telling them that even in their low condition, one day they shall be glorious. One day God is going to do something wonderful and glorious and their, their fortunes or their blessings are going to be transformed. And they would find this a bit difficult to believe. And if we put ourselves into our own position today, do we really believe that the church will have a wonderful time of blessing. Do we really believe that? Here we gather week after week. We have more empty seats than full seats. 
more empty seats than occupied seats. And that pattern can be replicated through many, many churches throughout our country and indeed throughout the Western world. Do we really believe then that there are glorious days ahead for the church of Christ? These people recognizing the state that the church was in when Isaiah delivered this prophecy would find this incredible. To think that the church would flourish and prosper. To think that the people of God would flow into the church. And not only that, but the Gentiles would also be brought into the church. There would be a tremendous transformation. They would find this difficult to believe. And maybe we're exactly the same. Maybe we've lost a vision. Maybe we think too little of the blessing that lies ahead. We are to believe these things. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now, this prophecy is not just concerned with the time when they would return from the Babylonian captivity. Yes, it was partially fulfilled then. But you know, obviously after the time of Jesus in AD 70, the temple was destroyed again. It's looking further than that, friends. It's looking to the glorious time that will come upon the Christian church as Christ continues to build his kingdom. And this is what we are to believe. Christ indeed set up his, if you like, the Christian church when he, when he came the first time. But he is still building it. He's still adding to the church. We've, we've seen what he did in the book of Acts. We're beginning to look at it. That was only the beginning. There's more to come, for Christ has an everlasting kingdom. Well, we are to believe this. This is the prayer, therefore we are to believe it. Not only that, we are to pray. We are to pray believing. Here, if we like, it's the Lord's will. When the Lord gives a prophecy to a, a prophet and he delivers a burden, it's the Lord's will we have. It's, this is not uh, something that Isaiah dreamt up. No, this is God speaking through his mouthpiece. And this is God revealing his will to his people. For us, the will of God for, and therefore we are to pray. We are to heartily pray, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the will of God. Sometimes we, we might not be, we might say to ourselves, well, what is the will of God for my life? And that's not always easy to find out or to determine. But friends, we know this is God's will. That there are lessons that shall befall the church of Christ in the latter days. And as I have said to you on other occasions, the last days, when are they? They began when Jesus Christ came, within the last days. And therefore we can look forward to blessings in the last days, in our day. 
and therefore we are to pray with that in mind and we are to we are to petition God we are to give him no rest is that not what it says later on in Isaiah give him no rest do you ever really trouble God with your prayer well I don't mean do you pray amiss but does God hear you God wants to hear Oh, we can say the zeal of the Lord shall accomplish this. Yes, that is true. But he uses means. And prayer is one means whereby his will is fulfilled. We have been reading through, uh, we have been singing through uh, Psalm 72. And we shall fi finish it shortly. But one of the verses says here, in verse 15, I'm reading from the metrical version. It's all, this is all about Solomon and about Solomon's greater son. It's all ultimately about the Messiah. It's all ultimately about the Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 15, yea, he shall live and given to him shall be of Sheba's gold. For him still shall they pray. And he shall daily. The Jews would pray for the Messiah to come. Well, the Messiah has come. And we ask to pray to the Messiah that he would build his. And that this prophecy that we see here and in other places would be fulfilled. This is a, a missionary prayer meeting. We're going to cry out to God indeed that Christ's everlasting kingdom would be built in our midst and that the Lord indeed might be pleased to use us. So we're to pray with that end. God has revealed his will. It's not a, it's not a secret. We cannot go wrong when we pray with a, a missionary emphasis. But there's another lesson too. We are to preserve or persevere. We're not to give up. Again, go back to those in captivity who would be reading about this. There, there they were in Babylon, wondering what's going on. They were hankering after their homeland. They were thinking about the temple that was destroyed. They were thinking about the means of grace that they enjoyed. And here they were in a strange land under a foreign ruler and a foreign tongue. And they would read about this. And this would encourage them. It would encourage them to persevere and to maintain their devotion to Jehovah even in captivity. There would be great temptation upon them to succumb to temptation and to embrace idolatry and just to go with the flow. It's so much easier to do that, especially when you're in a foreign land and you're a captive. But when they would read this, would this not encourage them? Would it not tell them that there's better days? Well, friends, is this not a message for us today? We lament the state of the church today and it would be easy to go with the flow. 
But we're not to go with the flow. We're to persevere. We're to look for better days. We're to pray for better days. And we're to work for better days. We are to be consistent. And as it would, would be most definitely a, a time and a, of encouragement for these people, so it is for God's people today. Despite the difficulties, despite the opposition, despite the apathy, despite the, the hostility, we're to persevere and to fight the good fight of faith. Well, connected with perseverance is we are to be active, we're to be busy. This word shall be fulfilled. Christ, shall ha Christ has an everlasting kingdom. It shall be victorious. And everything shall be overthrown. And we're to be busy then. First of all, we are to be busy in the sense that we're to be in this kingdom. We're to be part of this kingdom. Is that not what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? In Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, does he not say this? But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Get into the kingdom of God. Have an interest in Christ, in his crucifixion, in what he has done. Make personal application to him. Be under his kingship. That's what's required of every one of us. And when we're in the kingdom of God, let us be zealous for the kingdom of God. And let us be zealous that the kingdom of God might extend both within ourselves, within our homes and families, in our congregation and in our community. We are to be busy to do whatever we can, whatever comes to our hand, in order that we might in some way, under the blessing of God, propagate the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, there's another practical application for us. Surely it is to examine ourselves. Because look, look at the, the fruit of this kingdom. This kingdom has a, a powerful moral effect. This kingdom changes individuals and of course, when you change individuals, if you change enough of them, you change the nations. And that's what happens. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Verse 3, does it not tell us? He will teach us of his ways and we will walk in his paths. It's when we come to into the kingdom of God and when we're under the means of grace and when the word of God has been read and proclaimed to us, what is happening? God by his spirit is teaching us his ways. This is what we come to the house of God for. This is a schoolroom. This is Christ's schoolroom and he's teaching his disciples in some real way. We sit at his feet and we hear what he has to say. And he, from his word, he outlines his ways. Well, 
We're all under his ways. We're all under his teachings. But are we walking in his paths? This is what they say is, we will walk in his paths. It's a life of obedience. Do we know anything of this? Teaching is great, but that teaching must be put into practice. We are to walk in his paths. And I've already quoted from verse 4, nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. <clears throat> what is it teaching the individual? Well, surely it's teaching the individual that when you're part of Christ's kingdom, peace reigns. When you're in the kingdom of Christ, when you're truly born again by the Spirit of God, what happens, friends? Your sins are forgiven and you're reconciled to God and you have peace with God. And that peace with God will manifest itself with peace with one another. This is what happens here. There are swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. There's no more fighting. None whatsoever is gone. The instruments that were used for violence and for war are now turned into instruments that are made useful for all of mankind. And in a micro level, this applies to every single individual. We are to be changed. Where there was animosity, there is to be peace. If someone's truly at peace with God, he will endeavor to be at peace with his brother, his sister, in the family, in the congregation, and in the community. Romans 12, the practical part of Romans. Verse 18, if it be possible, and it's not always possible. But if it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Live peaceably with all men. We're not to be warring individuals. We can disagree. But we're not to be disagreeable. And there is a difference. Good men, Christian men can disagree. But to be disagreeable is not on the cards. Romans goes on. Paul goes on in Romans. In chapter 14, verse 19. Let us therefore follow after things which make for peace. And things wherewith one may edify another. What a transformation that would be in our lives. If we if we're determined to make peace, not peace at any price, of course, we never sacrifice truth or principle, but if there is a, a desire to make peace, to be reconciled, and whereby we might edify another. This is what it's talking about here. Individuals change, Enough of the individuals change and the nation changes. 
no more fighting. Follow peace with all men, Paul tells the Hebrews. Follow peace with all men, not just those in your congregation, not just those in your denomination, but with all men. That's not easy. That's the kingdom of God. That's what happens. Follow peace with all men. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy, James says. In chapter 3, verse 17 of that practical Christianity book. Where are we then? Are we in the kingdom of God? Are we in Christ's everlasting kingdom? Do we appreciate the glory that's yet to be revealed? Oh, we've had a foretaste of it. Nations, Gentiles are flowing into it, but there's greater days ahead. Well, if we're in it, friends, we need to be peaceful and put into practice what he teaches us. Put into practice his ways. Christ's 